Turn, please, to page, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 980 to find the little letter of Philippians, Paul's letter to those who lived in Philippi. And we're going to read from chapter 2. You can see from our bulletin cover uh, this marvelous illustration uh, by Molly Slaughter that depicts both of the advents, the advent, the first advent in the manger, and then there's a scroll being given to the Lamb, and this is what happens in Revelation 5. The scroll represents his reigning over all of history, a magnificent moment where it is the Lamb alone, because He has died, who is now going to be Lord over all history. Just think of that, what that means. The Lamb who died is Lord over history. And it anticipates, with the uh, trumpets, the final uh, climax of that rule, which will be His uh, bringing us into new creation. So, a wonderful little capsule here of the first and second advent. Um, and we, we thank Molly for doing that for us. Now, here in Philippians, we're going to deal with that as well. <clears throat> we'll see the suffering of Christ's first advent and then the anticipation of his second advent. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the reading of God's Word. Uh, Pray with me as we come to His Word. Lord, we pray to open up our hearts. Show us Christ, Lord. Show us His beauty. Show us His glory. Uh, Cause our hearts to run after Him, to entrust ourselves to Him, to delight in Him, to worship Him, to submit to Him to serve Him gladly, to put our, our final hope in Him and Him alone. Bless us, Lord, by Your Spirit, that we might truly feed from Your Word, that we truly might grow in Your grace. 
For your glory, we pray. Amen. Waiting is just a regular part of life, isn't it? You start by waiting on the toast and waiting on the coffee, waiting on your uh, dropping your children off, uh, waiting in that line, uh, waiting to uh, talk to customer service on the phone, waiting in a traffic jam, waiting for a biopsy, waiting for Christmas morning, waiting. Kay and I have our own uh, particular version of waiting. Uh, First, waiting years to get pregnant, then finally finding out that we could not, in fact, get pregnant. Then two years wait, the process of adopting our first child, Chase. And then another two years later, we adopt our second child, Anna Kate. And then we were, two years later, supposed to adopt a third child. However, he had an emergency surgery the morning after he was born, and the biological family waffled because they were afraid, because we didn't have that much money, small pastor, small church, that the cost of the surgery in the hospital would end up falling back on them if we couldn't pay. So they were thinking that, we'd be safer giving this child to the state of Louisiana. Well, it was a long wait this whole week because we weren't sure. It seemed to go back and forth, back and forth. Finally, on Friday, I get the call from Chet, our attorney, and he says, Darwin, I'm sorry. They're not going to give you the child. So... Church is about two blocks away from my house. I walk these two sad blocks. I walk in to tell her the news Chet just gave me. And Kay greets me with this. We're going to get the baby. And I say, no, honey, no, no. I just talked to Chet. I'm sorry. He just told me we're not going to get the baby. She said, no, no, no. I just now got off the phone from the social worker. She just was talking to the family. Chet doesn't know yet. We are going to receive the child. And we did. And continue to have unlimited gratitude to God for his kindness to us. So waiting. We've each got our stories, right? Now, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, you might not know that for a Christian, all of life is a kind of waiting. The title of this series is Awaiting the King. And that's not just a title for December, that's a title for a Christian's whole life. And just so you know, the king in this title, Waiting of the King, is, excuse me, is Jesus Christ. And we are waiting his return from heaven when we believe that he will remove all suffering and sin and sadness in the world And he will transform us and the whole of creation forever. So all of our life is in the context of this waiting. But this waiting doesn't mean inaction or inactivity. We're not waiting in line, right? In fact, it means the opposite. Our belief in his coming actually gives meaning and energy And hope to everything we do in this life, even when we encounter tragedy. 
That's how important this waiting is for us. Waiting for him is also a critical part of our being a community at all. And so the December series is Awaiting the King, but this first sermon, as you can see, is entitled Being the King's Community. So here's what I mean by this, or here's what I'm asking. In light of who this coming king is, in light of what he is like, what kind of community are we called to be? What, what, does, what, what does this king's very character mean for us as we await for him and we are his community? So we just take the passage as it comes to us. This first uh, four or five verses, we have this, the, this call to have the same mind as the king. Same mind as the king. Now, see if you can guess what these names I'm about to spill out refer to. You could raise your hand when you, uh, when you know, okay? <clears throat> Apple, buffalo, bluebell. Cannon, cat, crow, dead moose, duck, fox, knife, little pine, leaf, little swan, lime, paint, panther, pigeon, plum, rabbit, rice, rock, rum. Got a little rhyme in there, yeah. Snake, salt, skunk, turkey, turtle, wolf. Easy, right? Tributaries of the Mississippi. I know you all knew that. I know you knew that. Right. I didn't say Yazoo because some people would have known what that was. Tributaries of the Mississippi River. And just a few of them, believe me. Just a few of the tributaries. Now, kids, you know what a tributary is, right? It's a smaller river that pours its water into a larger river. And if you were standing on the banks of the Mississippi at the mouth in New Orleans and you're watching 650,000 gallons pour out every second, which is nothing compared to the Amazon, which pours out 7 million gallons every second, okay? Don't get haughty. Um, (laughs) But all this water pouring out, you might say, where did this come from? What's the source of all this water? You have to say... It's the hundreds and hundreds of creeks and streams and rivers that pour into this big river. And here's a question for us. What is our source for being a community of love? Paul says it right here in the very first verse that Christ is the the source. See how he starts. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ... In union with Christ. Everything Paul talks about here comes to us because we are joined to Christ. We're in Christ. His life and the rich blessings of his redemption pour into our lives like tributaries into the Mississippi. And by the way, when Paul says, if here, if there's any encouragement... It's really an effective literary method to underscore the absolute reality of these things. So that you could translate it, 
Since we have encouragement in Christ, since we have comfort in love, these are the graces we possess in Christ Jesus. That's how we should read this. Since these are your graces. And you really can't separate the vertical from the horizontal here. Because what we have from him, each of us, is what we share with each other. Okay, so what we have from him, we share. Give you an example from 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says, who comforts us, speaking of God, he comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So that word comfort right here, well, actually the word comfort is the word encouragement in our passage. So, yes, we receive this encouragement, and through this encouragement, we bring encouragement into one another's life. So what we have from him is what we share with each other. And so to enlarge a little bit on this first verse, if you have any encouragement in Christ, for instance, the encouragement of being forgiven forever as Ryan referred to earlier. The encouragement of God's full and constant favor in Christ, that all things work together for your good because you are in Christ. These are just a few of the encouragements that we have. The the comfort of his love, the comfort of unfailing, constant love that God gives to us. This participation in the spirit is that word koinonia, fellowship or communion. We have communion in, with the spirit in all of his life and power. What does that mean for us, right? The life, the energy that this gives us to live for him. And then he speaks of the affection. It's, it's striking that he would use this of God because this word affection refers to Get ready for your medical uh, training here. The bowels or intestines. Because they would use that word to talk about the deepest affections and feelings. Isn't that wonderful that God, who, of course, doesn't literally have any intestines, (laughs) uses this word to express the deep, rich affection he has for his people. And then when we experience that affection... It begins to transform us so that we have this deep affection for one another. And the same with this sympathy. Amazing that God sympathizes, as he says in the Old Testament, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. It's like I get poked in the eye when something. Oh, he sympathizes infinitely and perfectly with every single thing you go through. And as we experience that, we learn to have sympathy with one another. So, as he says, since you have these rich resources in Christ Jesus, since these lively tributaries pour their waters into your life, he says, be of the same mind. But it's like saying, since you have these resources in Christ, you can be of the same mind, right? You will be of the same mind as you trust in him. And though we can't spend much time on it, it's really touching that Paul would say, make my joy complete, which shows 
his pastor's heart, how bound up he is in their well-being, and really how bound up they are in wanting to bring joy to Paul. What an amazing relationship. But So this emphasis, one mind, one accord, one mind, a same mind, one accord, one mind. It doesn't mean having the same opinion, but it means having the same feeling and regard for one another. Okay? As he says here, having the same love toward one another. That's the likeness that he's going for. So as he goes on in verse 3, we're to have the same otherness, you might say. That's the one mind. One mind of putting each other ahead of ourselves. And when he says here in verse 3, count others more significant, this is a, this is a pretty big word. It's probably bigger than you want to hear or I want to hear. So this is the word he uses in Philippians 3 when he says, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And he says, treat one another as though they're surpassing you in their value. Or later in Philippians first, chapter 4, verse 7, he talks about, which many of you know, the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. There's the word again. So it's not just, I count you as a little better than me. I count you as surpassing me. It means to lift them up above, to put them over the horizon. So, I'm to say, and we're to say to each other, you surpass me in importance. To say to my wife, to say to your wife and your husband and your children and your parents, you surpass me in importance. Now, we just jumped into the impossible, didn't we? <laughs> just the unimaginable that so bent in on myself that I could really think those things. Ah, but since you have encouragement in Christ and comfort in this, you have the resources in Christ Jesus. And we're going to, of course, see this is the very heart of God for us. And we participate in that God. And so it follows if our, we count one another as more important, then we will be looking out for one another's interests, not only our, our own, right? Verse 4 follows from verse 3. So your concerns are just as important as my concerns. There's this oneness that we have in that we cannot detach ourselves from one another or ignore one another. That's the same mind he's talking about here. Not just the same opinion or even believing the same doctrine. That's not the point. It's to have this same oneness about us that we cannot detach ourselves from one another so that your concerns, don't wish it wouldn't, but your concerns become my concerns. Sometimes you feel that way, right? It's a beautiful thing to be concerned about others. It's a, many times people will say, I'm sorry to burden you with this. 
But in Christ and bringing the gospel to this situation, it's one of the most beautiful things, even if you get exhausted in the midst of it. Getting to, in some way, be other-centered, out of this cloister of a dead darkness that's just me, you know, to move out to embrace the pain of others. So we begin more and more to have this one mind so that what affects you affects me. Like Paul says in Romans twelve fifteen, rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep. See? That's that one mind. You can't, you can't detach yourself from one another. That's what he's calling for. That's the meaning of counting others as more important than yourself. Now we get to the last part of this, verse 5, where he says, have this, our translation, ESV says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But most translations say, have this mind in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. It's a little more literal. But where do they get the your, which is yours in Christ Jesus? I haven't talked to the translators. I hadn't called them up, but I think... They got it from verse 1. Because this whole thing, you see, is in Christ. Everything he's talked about is in Christ. And so if he's beginning to talk about have this mind in Christ, it's as though Paul is pulling from verse 1 and saying, and you do. (laughs) You do because you're in Christ. You see, this changes it. So that you are in Christ. His attitude is becoming your attitude. His character is becoming your character. The tributaries of his grace are flowing into your life. It's not just have Christ's mind. You can have Christ's mind. You will more and more have Christ's minds. It's yours in Christ Jesus. How hopeful. How hopeful when we feel the deadness. The lack of love. The failure to love. By God's grace, we are being saved. We are being saved. We have the mind of Christ. So it brings us then to uh, the sixth verse. And by the way, just so you know, we've gone two pages. I've only got one page to go, just, just to let you know. The, uh, and and I, I wish I had put this in this uh, for the second one. We say the same mind as our king, as the king, the same servanthood as the king. Okay. The original, I was just going to describe the servanthood, but really it should be uh, have the same servanthood as the king. So to have his mind is to have his servanthood. What is this mind of Christ that he tells us to have? Well, here it is. We read that the Son of God was equal with God. He was God, but he didn't consider that being equal with God meant taking everything to himself. That's that word there, a thing to be grasped, see, to to be graspy about what he had. But rather equality with God meant giving everything away for the sake of others. As the NIV translates here, he didn't use that equality to his own advantage. 
We know how quickly those in power abuse that power to hurt others. But the Son of God uses his power to endanger himself for his people. That's the king we serve. It says that he made himself nothing. This word can mean also, and I think here it it gets this flavor. It's a a creative way to say this. He poured to pour out. So it can describe a man who spends all of his property on the poor. He spends himself for the poor. Spends everything he has for the poor. Empties himself. Makes himself nothing. You see, he has nothing left. And that's a creative way to say, our Lord Jesus spent all of his property on us. He lavished himself on his people. He gives himself completely away to us. As one wrote, he effaced all thought of self and poured out his fullness to enrich others. Have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. And here's the irony. By taking on flesh, which historically we would hear it as veiling, you know, veiling the deity. He doesn't have that outward glory and all this. We kind of think of that, hiding his deity. And there's a certain sense, of course, in terms of just visibility where that's true. But here we learn that his coming in the flesh unveils his boundless love. Here is the majestic, all-powerful, holy creator and judge of the world who looks to the interests of others. Who regards the needs of his people as more important than himself. It's astonishing we're staring at the humble God. Paul says he becomes a slave. He deserves to be on the throne and for all beings to serve him. And now here he is standing before the throne to serve. And this service to the Father means service to his people. And the king places himself beneath these people by becoming their slave to do them good. His servanthood meant that he would shed his own blood, that he would bear their wrath. Now, our translation says, though he was in the form of God. Now, this is an added word to try to connect the phrases. I agree with those commentators that say this is the wrong direction. I agree with those who translate it this way. Because he was God, he did not grasp at equality, but poured himself out. You see the weight of that? That's what God does. That's who God is. God gives himself away. As Mill says, one commentator of the 19th century, precisely because he was God, he counted equality with God, not as a matter of getting, but a matter of giving. 
His true nature is characterized not by selfish grabbing, but by open-handed giving because he was God. He gave himself away. That's what it means that God is love. That's who he is. That's what he does. And Jesus and God the Son coming in the flesh unveil majesty like we'd never seen. And remember, through the Spirit's presence in your life, as you uh, have this participation, this koinonia in the life of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, this same humility will increasingly be ours in Christ. You and I must expect it. We must pray for it. We must be like Jacob. I will not let you go till you bless me, you know. Oh, Lord, give me this humility. You tell me to have the mind of Christ. You you tell me what it is to count others as more important. I see it in his character. Lord, give what you've commanded, as Augustine says. Give what you've commanded. And you see, what's happening here is we're being restored to the image of God. We're being restored to the image of God. Of the humble God who gives himself away. We, in our sin, implode upon ourselves. We live for ourselves, not for others. We're being restored to the image of God. And therefore, we're being restored to our true nobility. Our true joy. Our true liberty. Of lavishly spending ourselves on one another as Christ spent himself on us. And finally, say we're to have the same mind as the king. We're to have, therefore, the same servanthood, same humility as this king. And finally, we have this glorious description in verses 9 through 11. Now, I had some problem along the way trying to figure out how does this fit in with count one another as more important than yourself. I mean, why didn't he just end with verse 8? Because that's the lesson, right? To be humble like Christ, to be a servant like Christ. Why, why this part about the exaltation of Christ now, the name that above every name, and then the future prospect that every knee will bow and, and worship him? Well, first, I'll say this. It teaches us that God entrusts his world only to humble other-centered servants. That's who reigns in the end, along with Jesus. Humble, other-centered servants. What other kind of king would you want, right? What other kind of government official would you want? Someone who's giving himself away and centered on the needs of the people. Those are the only kings in the new creation. As Jesus himself said, the meek will inherit the earth. It's a synonym for humble. The meek will inherit the earth. And you see this in verse 9. He says, after saying death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him. Why is he exalted? Because he showed the, the glory and the nature of God because of his humility. Only the humble will share in Christ's reign. 
And if you and I abuse our authority as a way of life, how will God entrust us with that authority? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And just along these lines, this word for rivalry in verse 3, it's also translated selfish ambition, sometimes self-seeking or self-interest. It's all about the implosion of self, right? It's used in Romans 2 and in Galatians 5 in some lists of which Paul says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or, Romans 2, they will suffer the wrath and fury of God. So, brothers and sisters, this is not an option. It's part of his salvation, right? Part of his salvation to rescue us from the darkness and the deadness of living for ourselves and to make us expansive creatures who spread ourselves out and love others. And then finally, Christ's exaltation. Receiving the name above every name. That's what he has now. The, the, The name above every name has to be the name of God, right? What other name could it be? Notice... He's given the name above every name because of what? Because he humbled himself. Because he became a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. It shows the father's great pleasure in the son's humble servanthood. It shows that he fully manifested the character of our father. (laughs) You know, sometimes I have many times in the past been confused thinking that Jesus' humility has nothing to do with the Father. But you remember what Jesus said, I do nothing except what I see my Father do. I do nothing except His will and bear His character. So He manifested the Father. The name above every name is given to the servant who shed His blood. That is His glory forever. As we see on the front of our bulletin where In Revelation 5, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's the everlasting hymn. As we delight in, as we are astonished that you gave your life for us. That's his glory. That's the glory of God. That he's a God who comes to die for his people So you see, we're waiting for that king. We're waiting for the humble king. And of course, it means we want to be a humble people like him. We we want to express his character. We, We want to anticipate his coming by living for his glory and manifesting him in the midst of this dark world. It gives us hope that no matter what opposition any of us faces, no matter what suffering, we can continue to show mercy to people because we know if they don't submit to him, they'll have to submit to him in that day. And it's part of their judgment. It allows us to love people when they hate us. Thankfully, we can be this people of humility because of his grace And I do want to say to you, if you're an unbeliever, if you don't believe in Jesus, that 
He came to die. It says in, in Paul, he came to die for people who were sinful. He came to die for the ungodly while we were yet sinners. And he came to die so that we could enter into God's forgiveness completely and that we could enter God's favor no matter what we've been or done. And I just urge you, consider Jesus Christ. Consider this king to put yourself under his care forever. Look at God, what God has done. Don't refuse this care of this God. Let us pray. Lord, bless us. Open up our hearts to receive your word. Lord, teach us from Christ. Uh, make us like yourself, Lord. Set us free. We ask it for your glory. Amen.